Like, I literally had a swimming teacher called Mrs. Paddle. Actually, <laughs> that actually happened. My dentist was called Mrs. Spittle. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to this week's edition of What A Way To Go, a podcast about unusual deaths, near misses and bizarre stories with your hosts, Ellen Gamer, Sarah Austin and Claire Daly. Um, if you don't already know the format, basically we are three friends telling each other stories about weird ways that people have died or nearly died. We are hearing each other's stories in real time, as are you. Also, we're drinking alcohol. Yeah. Sometimes it's wine, sometimes it's beer, sometimes it's Prosecco. Those are more or less the limitations. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to bring in a whiskey one day. <coughs> oh, just to watch. I mean, probably not, but <laughs> it'd be nice to. Some like mezcal, some tequila, just get really fucked up in the booth. I mean, I did that in episode one, so <laughs> I don't, I did I don't need to get pissed again. <laughs> episode three, and I couldn't listen to it all because I just hated myself so much in it. So, uh, well, so no, see, ironically, episode three was my favourite, but yeah, like episode, my least episode one and two, I just. <laughs> well, I was going to say, so listeners, we this is the first time for you. It's absolutely seamless, and this is just episode <laughs> seven, <laughs> and it's been rolling on a weekly basis. But this is actually the first time we've been in the studio together. For like five weeks? Yeah, since we put it live, basically. We haven't been yeah. in the studio. So yeah. basically we've now had five <coughs> weeks of listening to ourselves and I was going to ask, what have you learnt about yourself in the time that you've been listening to yourself podcast? I haven't learnt anything new. I know that when I drink too much I slur my words. <laughs> <laughs> I do that when I'm sober but no one believes me. Um, and I said like a lot in the first couple of episodes mm. i try to not but do i think we now. all say like a lot that's yeah. like a <laughs> that's like a that's like a, a trait yeah. of our generation and gender too i i realized that i swear fucking loads i knew i swore anyway but like i'm a potty mouth yeah i think we all are more than i would have realized right and I, yeah i think we all definitely are maybe it's too much I don't know. Just got to let it flow. It's, mm. got, it's kind of natural though, isn't it? I, I I know that I swear a lot and I'm surprised when I listen back. I'm surprised, especially with you, I'm surprised at how much you how much you swear because I just don't think of you yeah, as a swearer. Yeah, I don't think of you as a swearer. But even, even last episode, you towards the end were swearing quite a lot and I was like... <laughs> I got quite... I fucking love it. So I, got, <laughs> I'm right with I was it. pretty pissed by the end of uh, episode six. My uh, voice is higher than I thought it was. I think mine sounds a lot higher compared to both of yours, which I don't. I don't think like. it does. I think don't we all kind of like. Oh yeah, I like hearing your voice on. I love it. Oh, cheers. <laughs> I love it. Anyway, these are like these are weird little insights that you only get if you listen intensely to yourself talking directly into a microphone for six hours. Yeah. So, you know. Anyway. Okay, so it's my turn to kick off yeah. this week, mm-hmm. and. I, I'm not gonna I'm literally not gonna tell you anything. I'm gonna talk to you about this story in the order that I think it will be most effective. Okay. So I'm gonna tell you about the band oh fuck. The band, I've got it so this is set in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Okay. Oh my god. But it's not like my Cameroon Oh god. Have you got the same story? Mm. Okay. <laughs> 
just sorry I always do this I think <laughs> this is on my list okay probably they all are <laughs> it might be oh no anyway it doesn't matter anyway, anyway, I haven't done it let me it and I haven't researched it so it's set in the it's it happened in the Democratic Republic of the Congo from now on I will be referring to that as DRC it's got lots of different names um, and it is the and the reason I caveat that is because I'm probably going to pronounce things very badly as usual so I'm talking about the Bandundu Filler Let L410 Crash. Okay, is this it? I don't know. Oh. I haven't researched it. Okay, mate. fine. Okay, 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 okay. So I'm t- going to take you back to 2010. Um, and basically there is a small internal flight happening within the DRC. It's a little flight. It's a tiny little plane that takes 19 passengers. That sounds horrible. <laughs> Um, we're in. We're on the twenty fifth of August, twenty ten. Tiny little plane. Um, it is going from uh, Kinshasa to Bandundu, um, which is about one hundred and sixty miles. It's the equivalent of London to Leeds, basically. So it's not super far. Tiny little plane, internal flight, just like of an afternoon in August. At about one p.m. local time just a kilometre short of the runway where it was supposed to land the plane crashes it crashes into a house Jesus. and 20 people on board die so obviously emergency services instantly are called to the scene they swarm around the plane and the wreckage um, at the time the local radio were instantly on the case and they were saying um, the aircraft had run out of fuel um, and basically that kind of that narrative of it having run out of fuel got reported in a few local places but actually the uh, airline who was Phil Air said no 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 that had like 150 litres of kerosene still on board like it did not run out of fuel we are not responsible for this so basically nearly everyone all but one person has died that was on that aeroplane and the narrative was just that there was some engineering fault or it would run out of fuel. Anyway, so the uh, emergency services are called in and the police start doing their investigations. And throughout the process of the investigations, they talk to the one person who survived on the plane. And they discover, through the course of talking to this one person who survived, that what had actually caused the crash was a loose crocodile. (gasps) What? in the cabin no fucking way yes. that sounds like hell right imagine being it's on like a plane with a crocodile a loose the worst, crocodile the w- a worst version of snakes on a plane yeah like, yeah, like well, well not for hours actually no. <laughs> <laughs> we know she doesn't like snakes so a report by news organisation Jeune Afrique stated according to the inquiry report and the testimony of the only survivor the crash happened because of a panic sparked by the escape of a crocodile that was hidden in a sports bag. So, <laughs> what? <laughs> I'll just take that. I'll just have that as my carry-on. Just put it in there. How I'm just popping a, in my handbag. <laughs> I'm popping a crocodile in there. Essentials. Can't put it in the hole. Just essentials. <laughs> I might need that in the middle of the flight. <laughs> so basically, one of the passengers had hidden the animal which he was planning to sell in a big sports bag. Jesus. And Lord. just like brought it because it's a tiny little plane, only 19 people, just like a giant. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine the farce. 
of like, first of all, getting a crocodile in a hold all. Yeah. <laughs> much less getting it through security or whatever you need to get through. How much persuasion? Come on, just get in. Just get in. It'll be fine. <laughs> like, it's what? like an hour. It's an hour long. Just yeah. get in. I'll get you an ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> you just cooperate for God's sake. So basically, um, yeah, this this passenger or two passengers, d- different reports report different things, um, had hidden the animal which they were planning to sell and it got out of the bag. And then basically everyone panicking, they ran to the... F- everyone ran to the front of the plane. You would. And the fucking crocodile. Yeah, <laughs> right. And totally knocked it off balance and it crashed just like oh. a matter of yards before the, before the runway. Jesus. Which is... <laughs> nuts isn't it totally nuts and you I often think about this right when you're on a plane that's not completely full they do move people around to make sure it's all balanced Mm. out right even on a massive jumbo jet you can't have everyone just like right at the front or right at the side so imagine everyone on board literally every passenger on board a little jet at one time running towards the front of course it's game over and you wouldn't think about it if you were running from a crocodile you wouldn't think about aerodynamics about no no you're you're like like, i don't want to get bit i don't want to be chomped by this um by this crocodile so um there was an inquest four years later it actually turned out like i found loads of stuff on this in the uk press and actually turned out that the first officer was british oh he was a guy called chris wilson who was from sherdington near gloucestershire um, and he so the the airline is Belgian, but he was out there working in the DRC as a pilot doing internal flights. And he said that the co-pilot that he was working with was like a really apparently a really terrible pilot. And Chris had always said like he spoke to his brother, and he was always like, I can't believe this guy even survives. I can't even believe he can fly planes. Basically, wow. um, so he was the guy that was co-piloting at the time. Um, but apparently, it's quite common for animals to be on planes like that because people will take like chickens to sell or they'll take like stuff that will need to go to market and it's just a kind of little these planes are built to be able to kind of land anywhere they can land on places that don't really have runways it's in the drc they're kind of they kind of hop around and can get everywhere um but it turns out crocodiles surprise crocodiles but yes, yeah, so like, there. did the, did anyone know that apart from the guy that put the crocodile in the duffel bag? No, did no, anybody know? No, no one knew it was there, and the crocodile was pissed, <laughs> <laughs> fucking angry about being shoved. Yeah, in a... prob- probably was. Um, Nike. So the bag. the reports that I read said that it survived the crash, but then was killed by a machete. Like after the crash, I don't really. Yeah, I mean, it's not none it's of it is not, great. But Elsa's I mean, <laughs> face is really like, what? That's a bit unfair. It's not the crocodile's fault. No, he doesn't want to be not. in He's, a bag on a plane. He didn't ask for He's it at all. He's very scared of flying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no one asked his permission. Yeah. Um, so the crocodile was thought to be between two and three foot. So, just, I mean, any size. Yeah, it's not, not. it's not the biggest crocodile you've ever seen, but like big enough. In an enclosed tin How can. How did it get yeah. out of the bag? It just escaped from a bit through it. Yeah, I guess like it's whatever. Got quite big teeth. Amazing. Yeah, so that's the Bandundu Filet Let L410 crash, which is the biggest mouthful of a title I could possibly think of. It's mm. such a good story. Yeah, that's I love really it. Story. So was it the much. one you were thinking of? So it's been on my list since day one oh. because I read it and I was like, this is brilliant and also a little bit 
funny that's a horrible yeah, thing know, to say about yeah. but the crocodile part of it yeah but i just didn't think that i could do it justice I even because i've got it on my list i even was thinking about it today but i was like i just don't think i can do it justice well that's why i was like i'm not gonna i'm gonna save mm. the reveal until like such until a good story. imagine that though like everyone yeah. running to the front because there's a crocodile <laughs> snapping oh after you it's, it's yeah it's crazy it's Scary. So that's it. I can't wait for the picture you put up on Instagram. It's <laughs> a big crocodile. Yeah, apparently, Presumably so no I've got a picture of that. Well, so apparently there is there exists a video of the crocodile on the plane. Oh, Jesus Christ. I didn't want to see it. No, no um, that's great. So I didn't dig too deep. Wow. But apparently that exists. Has anyone ever seen the picture of the I think Saudi prince who booked out all of first class? Just to fly as hawks. <laughs> no. Wait. Where were they loose, sat? Loose. Where were they sat? <laughs> loose hawks on a plane. They were all. I think they must be. They must be fastened to something. Seatbelt in, probably. Oh. Tethered. Tethered. Yeah. Um, the picture of them was just reams of hawks, <laughs> all in first class. Apparently. Why didn't they just race the plane? I just fly yeah, to wherever he was outside. going. I mean, if he's going to America, fine. But yeah, I don't know why they didn't. Maybe yeah, might have been a long flight for them. And Amazing. Hey, maybe they just really wanted to experience first class. Exactly. We all do. Give your give your hawks first class. <laughs> I think it was a Saudi prince. How terrible is it that hawks have been flown in first class and we fucking haven't? <laughs> Someone needs to write that. Jesus. When you've got that bonkers Saudi prince money, you can do whatever you want, man. That is more money than sense, isn't it? Like, much oh, book out first class. Why don't I hawks. take all my? Also, why they had got... like little hats on. I think. <laughs> why has <laughs> it got so many hawks? And where are they going? I'm just gonna... We haven't got a picture of a crocodile, but we have got a picture of some lovely hawks. Hawks flying. I did think you were going to say horses. Yeah, I thought. Oh God. I would have loved. Oh, sorry, they're falcons. Oh my, uh, it's ruined. <laughs> yeah, they're falcons. Oh, you've really faux pas there. Oh, else we have to stop the whole podcast. <laughs> I'm leaving. I'm just going to show you the picture. <laughs> oh, they haven't got hats on. Uh-huh. Actually, that doesn't look like first class either. <laughs> I'm not sure that is first class. That's the best picture I've ever seen. It might have just been economy. <laughs> is, they're all sitting on little boxes. <laughs> that is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Why? And there's just an air, uh, an air, a cabin crew, what do you call them? Like this. Cabin, cabin crew going like, what the fuck? They had like a lovely day though, because they're not like, do you Does, want some refreshment? Do they eat peanuts? Just a big bucket ginger of ginger Maybe. I bet they got through the gin. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolute lads. Hell's bells, your turn. Okay, so my story is um, one that I found out about when I was away recently. So I went to see my sister in Singapore and then I went to Thailand. And when I was in Bangkok, I went to um, the house of a man called Jim Thompson. It's a tourist attraction. He's not just a mate of mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, so good. So it's a really interesting house and I'll talk a little bit about it. Um, and he's quite well known, partly because he was quite a big deal in the silk trade uh, and partly because of what happened to him. Um, which I will come to. So, Jim Thompson, born in Greenville, Delaware, um, in 1906. He's from quite a well-off family. Um, He went to boarding school. He attended Princeton, which is apparently the 
family university. Um, he'd always had a keen interest in art, but he decided to study to become an architect um, at the University of Pennsylvania. When he finished there, he uh, moved to New York or lived in New York. He might have been living there anyway. And he worked as an architect. However, something that I read about him, Time magazine, said that he um, networked with his parents, high society friends, offering up his expertise on home design. But actually, he failed his uh, exam to become a licensed architect three times. So, yeah, anyway, that's something about him. Um, by the early 1940s, he decided that he was going to um, join the US Army. Obviously, war was kind of escalating in Europe and around the world. Um, so he was uh, assigned to the Office of Strategic Services and went on to work with French forces in North Africa. Then he was in Europe and he was there for Victory in Europe Day. Um, and then he was transferred to Sri Lanka to work with Seri Thai, which is um, the Free Thai Movement. And so their mission was to help liberate Thailand from the occupation of Japan. So mm -hmm. obviously Japan was occupying quite a lot of countries in Southeast Asia during that time. Um, so he was about to be sent to Thailand in 1945 when Japan surrendered and World War II uh, came to an end. Um, but he ended up going to Thailand anyway, and he stayed there until 1946, um, and he worked for the US minister to Thailand. He used his contacts <coughs> with the Free Thai and Free Lao groups to help defuse conflicts on the borders, which I think had probably kind of arisen from Japan being there and then going again. Um, and then he went back to the States and was uh, discharged from military service, but he kind of felt that Bangkok was where he wanted to be. So he had been married, but he got divorced and he moved back to um, Bangkok uh, to kind of start a new phase of his life there. So in the late 40s is when he first moved there and he joined a group of investors to buy the Oriental Hotel in Bangkok. Um, but he ended up having differences with his associates, so he gave up his shares of the hotel, and that was when he kind of entered into the silk trade, the silk industry. So at this time, the silk weaving industry in Thailand was kind of dead because of the kind of use of um, machine-made cheaper silks. And he, it was actually quoted that he was disturbed by this, which is quite a strong thing to say. But anyway, he thought that this wasn't right. So he... Um, he thought well this is something that I'm gonna kind of get going again in Thailand um he took some samples of silk back over to New York and there was quite a lot of interest from fashion industry and designers so I think he thought okay this is something that is worth mm -hmm. making a go of uh so he rounded up 200 silk weavers supplied them with raw silk and dyes and established an international market for the silk production um so from an initial investment of 700 dollars in the late 40s the company was making six hundred and fifty thousand dollars in annual silk sales by the late 50s so he was a pretty wealthy guy good going good going so he was pretty famous and well known for his kind of work in the silk industry um and time magazine ran a profile on him in 1958 so he was quite a, a well-known guy so at the height of his success when he was rolling in it he decided to um build this house in bangkok which is what you can go and visit uh now so it's quite an amazing house or houses um they are traditional teak houses um and he i think sourced them from various places in thailand um and it's quite now the place that it's in is quite built up there's a lot of like shopping centers and like a sky train 
I don't know what it would have been like in the late 50s, but if you go to visit there, it's kind of like an oasis of calm, nice mm. kind of gardens and things. So I think he was quite well known for building these houses and kind of creating this amazing place in Bangkok. He, There's some quite interesting things that you get told about when you kind of go and have a look at this house. Um, he had some astrological charts drawn up by a Buddhist monk um, in order to kind of seek an auspicious date uh, that would bring luck and harmony. So the charts are in the wall on the wall in the house when you go and have a look around it um and one of them predicted that 1959 would bring him good luck so um i think there was a lucky date and i was trying to find it and i couldn't find it anywhere and i couldn't remember what it was but i think this lucky date that was picked out was the day that he decided to move into the house mm-hmm. um so yeah 1959 particular date lucky for him there was another chart that was kind of his horoscope and that predicted that his 61st year which was 1967 would be would prove to be an unlucky year for him so there's quite a lot of other things to see he was quite an art collector there's amazing kind of pottery that he's got from china and there's statues and wood from burma he's also got some buddhas kind of statues of buddha in the garden and in the house I think there was a bit of controversy about where they came from. I did read something that said um, he kind of reclaimed things, I think, and I think there was some controversy. Stole. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> he fucking nicked them. I think that might be what the controversy was around, but I didn't sort of read too much into that. But what was quite interesting when I was there was that the Thai tour guide said that in Buddhism, it's considered unlucky to have broken statues of Buddha in your house. So she said that if you had a if you had a statue of Buddha and it broke, you would give it to the temple. Mm-hmm. Let them deal with the bad luck. <laughs> um, Over to you, lads. <laughs> but he had some of the statues, I think because they were salvaged or whatever, they did have kind of chips in them or an arm off or something like that. Um, and it wasn't something, I guess, that he was worried about because he wasn't Buddhist, I suppose. So that was kind of his house and that was some interesting points about it. He carried on, you know, living his life in Bangkok. He was one of the most famous Americans in Bangkok. Um, He continued to have huge success with his silk business, um, adding to his art collection. He was regularly hosting high society, had many visitors to his home, living his life for nigh on 10 years. In 1967... The inauspicious year. The unlucky year for him, yeah. Uh... He flew to the Cameron Highlands um, with his long-time acquaintance, Connie Mangs- M- Mangskow. His long-time acquaintance, Connie. <laughs> <laughs> um, to stay with some friends, their friends, the Lings, uh, in Moonlight Bungalow, which is now known as Jim Thompson Bungalow. Oh, it's nice. Moonlight Bungalow sounds lovely. Yeah. It does sound nice. I don't, I don't, yeah. don't care about Jim Thompson Bungalow. So, yeah, the Cameron Highlands are a really... Uh, interesting part of Malaysia they are as you might expect high <laughs> a lot of tea uh, planted there a lot of rainforest a lot of jungle much cooler than quite a lot of our other parts of Southeast Asia so quite a nice part part of the region to go to um, so he was there on a little holiday on the morning of Sunday the 26th of March uh, all four of the group that were staying at Moonlight Bungalow woke uh, early to attend a service at All Souls Church because it was Easter so why not 
Um, whilst the other three were getting ready, Jim went for a walk along Jalong Kamungting, which was the access road to the bungalow. And then he met up with the rest of the group and they went to church. Um, after the service, the, they returned to the bungalow. Three of them took a nap after lunch whilst Jim decided to go for another walk. So he left his cigarettes in his jungle box and he said... Sorry, his what? <laughs> his jungle box. I don't know what that is. I assume like a first aid kit, maybe? Yeah. Prepare Preparations for the jungle. Better pop the cigarettes in there. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he didn't take them. So okay, he obviously right, thought... Right. He didn't have his six. Right. He thought, he's going to be fine. Um, so he left, he left all that and he said, good night, sweethearts, and set off on his walk. Nicholas Lindhurst. Yeah. <laughs> Pre-dating as well. Mm. Um, so that was the last time that he was seen by the group. Oh, my God. So when he didn't return by nightfall, the Lings alerted the police and a huge manhunt ensued. So more than 500 people were involved in the hunt. Um, that included the army, Malaysian police, uh, Orang Asli trekkers, Gurkhas, reward hunters, tourists, residents, mystics... Scouts, missionaries, adventure seekers, American school students, and British servicemen convalescing at the resort. Um, so, all hands on deck, basically. All hands on deck. Pretty big. I think partly because of his fame or whatever. Mm. It was a big, big old thing. Um, a cook in a nearby Lutheran mission bungalow said that she had seen Jim Thompson standing on a nearby plateau for about half an hour um, and then she just said he said that suddenly he just disappeared so no trace of him was found by the end of a week of the week and after 11 days the official search was called off there was no clues there was no evidence there was nothing so that's kind of as far as anybody has ever got he just disappeared no one Jesus. no one's ever really found any evidence to suggest what might have happened some people there, there are obviously different ideas about what may have happened to him. Quite a popular theory was that he was killed by a tiger or by some other wild animal, which would obviously explain why there was kind of no traces of him left. Um, another theory that I read said that he potentially fell into an animal trap and then he was buried because when the trappers discovered what had happened to him, they just kind of buried him. There was a theory that I read about that stems from some bone fragments that were discovered in the Cameron Highlands in 1985. The police collected the fragments, but no no connection was actually made, I don't think, with Jim Thompson. Um, but a chap called Captain Philip J. Rivers. Great, great name. name. Great name. Strong name. name. And also, he was a master mariner. That's nominative... Nominative... Nominative determinism? What's what? his surname? Marina. His surname was Marina. No, sorry, Rivers. Oh, yeah, yeah, nice. Sorry. Anyway, what? No, it's... Oh, fuck, what is it called? Nominative determinism. determinism. Like, your name your after name. something that you do. Yeah. But, yeah. Like, your name but, dictates what you're going to do with yeah. your life. Oh, right. Like, I literally had a swimming teacher called Mrs. Paddle. <laughs> actually, ha- that actually happened. My dentist was called Mr. Spittle. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Um, anyway, I never knew that was a thing. I've just learned something at 31 years of age. Never, never stopped learning. No. Um, he was researching the case. I don't really know why, because he wasn't <laughs> just <laughs> bored. He wasn't just an investigator. Poking his nose in. Yeah, hey, why not? Um, and he said it was likely that Jim was the victim of a hit and run accident and then his body lay undiscovered in thick bush, so he was never found. 
I'm sorry, 500 people looking for yeah, you. Yeah, search and rescue. They're going to find that. Yeah, because another thing that I read was someone who said they just thought he got lost. Like, he liked to go trekking. He liked to get off the beaten path. But again, I mean, apparently the kind of area and the amount of jungle and the denseness of the jungle meant it would have taken months to, to really search it properly. So potentially they didn't cover all the ground. Mm. But there are a lot of people doing it. Um, so I don't know. Surely, if he if he, if it was a hit and run, he would have he wouldn't have gone that far from the road. Like you would have found him quite quickly. Like how far can you push a body if you're hitting it by a car? Yeah, yeah, it's not yeah, gonna go yeah. that far. Um, so yeah, they're kind of some of the theories about what may have happened to him. There are some other theories which, if they're true, uh, which basically would mean this story is null and void. For the podcast, <laughs> but I wanted to share it because I just thought it was a really interesting story, and because I kind of was there and saw it. Um, so one theory, which I think some people think is likely, and then other people have kind of dismissed, is that apparently a senior mem- a member of the Communist Party of Malaysia, made a deathbed confession that he was involved in Jim Thompson's disappearance. And apparently, Thompson had been asking to be put in contact with the Secretary General of the um, Communist Party when he arrived in the Cameron Highlands. And obviously he did have a bit of a... His career before he got into the silk industry was around uh, working with, I guess, the government, particularly Mm. with the free time movement and potentially there might have been some tensions between countries. He was political, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I also read that he was quite... People were perhaps a bit jealous of him because he'd made a lot of money or some people felt maybe that he was collecting artefacts and and art and things from you know thailand and other areas in the region but wasn't you know cultural appropriation yeah exactly Mm. and that maybe some people were annoyed about that but i don't know whether that would mean they would just follow him to the cameron highlands and kill him so that's you never know possibly unlikely and the last um suggestion about what happened to him is that he uh deliberately vanished um Mm. and there wasn't really loads about that i mean i suppose he was a bit of a master of reinvention. He went from an architect to a political, well, uh, involved in the US Army to becoming this huge person in the silk industry. So maybe he just thought, oh, I'm going to go and do something else. What's the next incarnation? Maybe mm. he's still kicking about doing something. Yeah, I mean, he would be 112. Uh, yeah, 112. Maybe he was uh, Bruce Forsyth. Maybe he was brief before, so yeah, that wasn't. I didn't read that theory, but it doesn't mean it's not true. That's new. Add it to the pile. We mm. should explore that avenue. Um, apparently, someone claimed to have spotted him in Tahiti some months later. Um, There's uh, always someone that spotted someone that's yeah. missing. It's nonsense. I think there are some other theories that people have spotted people, but um, anyway, no one knows. It's never been solved. That's the story of Jim Thompson. How weird. I reckon he got obsessed with the fact that he was going to die in that year or something bad was going to happen and he, like, not brought it on himself because that sounds really mean, but, like, put himself into a situation or did something. Yeah, so I think, like, I find that whole, like, astrological charts and all that sort of thing, I find it really interesting. I would quite like to have it done. But then I also think... We got our palms read in Margate once. What are you talking about? That's true. (laughs) And now I'm You sorted. both got the exact same reading. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. I got asked if I was gonna be a mum. Gonna get like pregnant. shortly. Exactly. And no. It's been almost a year and you're not with child. You're not with child. No. Yeah, but I do think to some extent, if you're like this is what your life looks like, then you're gonna be kind of slightly looking for signs and things. Yeah. You it's 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 
what is it emotional bias like someone tells you this is the year you're gonna die you become obsessed with it and it's like you automatically do things that take you to that Agi- no not agenda take you to that yeah thing. Well, yeah whatever that, that leads you down that path yeah. i guess yeah but it was really interesting if anyone ever goes to bangkok i would definitely go to jim thompson's house was it a nice house was it a nice house yeah it is it, well it's so it's these t- teak houses so they're kind of on they are like built in the traditional thai style but he had westernized them a bit like he'd put like a dining room table in there and like a western style toilet and they 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 were on stilts which is kind of the traditional building but i think some of them did have rooms underneath but they weren't nice you could go and have a look in them and obviously he's got his like art collection in there and it's still i think the jim thompson company is still kind of a running thing there's a shop on there on the site because i was like oh they've got laptop cases i need a laptop case i'm gonna go and have a look and obviously they're really expensive yeah. so mm-hmm. i did not buy a silk laptop case <laughs> it's a little bit extra <laughs> Um, um, are there any theories that it was aliens? I'm gonna, ha- I'm gonna bang this drum. <laughs> I'm gonna bang this drum until the day I die. It was aliens. Probably. I bet mm. if you searched Reddit or something like that hard enough, mm-hmm. you would find someone's coming at you <coughs> with a with an alien. Slash, slash, it was Buddha. Might, Buddha yeah. did him in. Buddha didn't Buddha. like all of those sacrilegious statues. statues. Maybe. I mean, he. You know. I mean, Buddha's not. That's not Buddha style. Buddha's not like Slimer and Ghostbusters, is he? No. He's like, he can't, <laughs> no. can't come back and wreak havoc. Don't think Buddha wants mm. revenge. No, no, he's probably quite chilled. If anything, he's too chilled. <laughs> anyway. Good story. That was really good. That was <laughs> good really story, interesting. Yeah. I kind of didn't really know where it was going to go, Yeah, to be honest. I, I, I really... Sorry. No, no, no. I was going to say I tried to kind of make it not too obvious. No, yeah, it wasn't. I really like that someone saw him on the plateau and then he was just gone. I like to imagine that he was just stood there staring into a single point in the distance for half an hour and then he disappeared. Was it near water? No. So what was the plateau on of looking at? Just Mm. a a Well if it's tea plantations they like flatten them out, don't they? Yeah. Oh right. The hill hill is flat. So he was yeah, okay, fine, that makes more sense. I've been to the Cameron Highlands and I didn't know about Jim Thompson when I was there. So I didn't go to the bungalow. I don't think you can actually go in, but just to kind of see it, I would have been definitely up for that if yeah. I had known about him then, but I didn't, so I've not been. So that's a null and void story. <laughs> Thanks. All right, I've got a bit of a weird one. Great. And a bit like Elle's, actually, a bit like your story, it could be a weird way to go, or it could be a near miss. No one really knows. Uh, I'm going to tell you the story of D.B. Cooper. Um, I spent a lot of time on Reddit in the last couple of weeks. I'll tell you why later. So, the night before Thanksgiving in 1971, a middle-aged man carrying a black briefcase approached the flight counter of Northwest Orient Airlines at Portland International Airport. He identified himself as Dan Cooper... And he used cash to purchase a one-way ticket for a 30-minute trip, a bit like the trip to Congo. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, A 30-minute trip to Seattle. So he boarded the aircraft. It was a Boeing 727-100, if that means anything to you. (laughs) Favourite. We're really getting into the plane models. Yeah. It's a big thing. Um, And he sat in seat 18C, uh, which was at the, the back of the passenger cabin. 
Uh, and because it was the 70s and he was cool as fuck, he lit a cigarette and ordered a bourbon and soda. Of course yes. he did. Done Draper. Yeah, very much so, actually. Mm. Um, he was described as mid-40s, 5 foot 10 to 6 foot, conflicting reports. He wore a smart, dark suit, loafers, uh, a neatly pressed white collared shirt, a black clip-on tie, and a mother-of-pearl tie pin. So he's pretty suave. Pretty, mm, pretty nicely dressed. Gent. I think I fancy him. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, not fine. Um, <laughs> That's all it takes. A, a lovely description of a really nice outfit. Mother yeah. of Pearl tag yeah. type in, yeah. Seals the deal. Um, the flight was approximately one third full when it took off, uh, and it took off on time at 2.50 p.m. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper, so DB Cooper, Dan Cooper, handed a note to the nearest flight attendant, uh, who was a woman called Florence Schaffner. Um, and again, because it was the 70s, <laughs> this is such a funny bit. She assumed the note contained a lonely businessman's phone number <laughs> and dropped it unopened into her purse. Uh, presumptuous. Presumptuous, yeah. very presumptuous. But maybe that's what the 70s was like. Um, he wasn't happy about this, so he leaned over and whispered in her ear, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I've got a bomb. <gasps> So he then told her to sit beside him. She did as she was told and then quietly asked to see the bomb, which is quite brave, actually. Uh, Brazen, brave, whatever. He opened his briefcase long enough for her to glimpse eight red cylinders that were attached Mm. to wires coated with red insulation and a large cylindrical battery. Uh, He closed the briefcase and then told her what he wanted. And what he wanted was $200,000 in negotiable American currency, which is equivalent to 1.2 million pounds as of last year. So oh, shit. Shit, shit ton of money. Four parachutes, two primary and two reserve, and a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon arrival. So that was where they were heading to. What? And they wanted to refuel the plane. Uh, so the air hostess, Florence, old flow, she went to the cockpit to talk to the pilots, and when she returned, he was wearing dark sunglasses. Lad, absolute lad. Was he not? He wasn't wearing those from the start. No, no, no. He just popped those put, on. Put them on. Job Add done. More mystery. Get those on. The pilot William Scott contacted Seattle Tacoma Airport Air Traffic Control, um, who then told the local and federal authorities about what was happening. There were thirty-six other passengers on the plane, and they were given false information that their arrival in Seattle would be delayed because of a minor mechanical difficulty. So no one told the passengers what was going on, which is probably a good thing, I yeah. suppose. Otherwise, they'd have <coughs> run to the front and the plane would have crashed. <laughs> Christ, yeah. Um, Northwest Orient's president, Donald Nyrop, he authorised the payment of the ransom and ordered all of the employees to cooperate fully with the hijackers' demands. Apparently, it was like a thing, like there was quite a few hijackings Hijacking, happening yeah, at the time. As like a ransom rather than a terrorist thing, Yeah, right? Yeah, so they told them to cooperate fully and then the uh, aircraft circled for around two hours to allow the police and the FBI enough time to get the parachutes and the ransom money um, and to mobilise emergency personnel so if you're a passenger on that plane you're like what the fuck's going on thinking there's a mechanical fault but you're just circling Mm. circling is horrible at the Mm, best of times but yeah during all this time apparently Cooper was calm polite and really well spoken Tina Mucklow who was another flight attendant is quoted as saying he wasn't nervous he seemed really nice he was never cruel or nasty he was thoughtful and calm all the time he ordered a second bourbon and water paid his drink tab and attempted to give Schaffner the change that's like a tip um, and he, towards the ransom you're after yeah, yeah. 
Keep that. Keep that, mate. You need it. Um, And then he also said that he would request meals for the flight crew during the stop in Seattle. Like, he wanted to make sure they were looked after and fed. Seems like a pretty, pretty decent hijacker. Um, So the FBI managed to get the money. It was 10,000 unmarked $20 bills, which is odd. And they all, or most of them, had had serial numbers beginning with the letter L, which meant that it was issued by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. And most were from the seri- from the 1963A or 1969 series, which meant obviously they were trackable. Mm. And the FBI actually took a microfilm photograph of each of them. So they knew exactly which ones they were giving to the guy so they could track them, etc., etc. He rejected the military-issued parachutes that he was given and he instead demanded that he was given civilian parachutes with manually operated ripcords, which in theory indicated he knew what he was asking for. At 5.24pm, he was informed that his demands had been met and at 5.39, the aircraft landed at Seattle. He instructed the pilot to taxi the jet to an isolated, brightly lit section of the tarmac and close the window shades so police snipers couldn't shoot at him. So the the cash-filled backpack and parachutes were delivered to Mucklow via the aft stairs. And once the delivery was completed, Cooper ordered all the passengers, Schaffner included, and the senior flight attendant, Alice Hancock, to leave the plane. So they were refueling the plane and he was talking to the pilot. Again, still really, really calm. He gave the flight team the very specific instructions to take a southeastern course towards Mexico at the minimum speed possible without crashing the plane but at the maximum altitude that could be handled by the plane at such a minimum speed this is so weird yeah again like he knew what he was asking for he'd done the calculations etc he further specified that the landing gear had to remain deployed in the takeoff landing position um, and that the wing flaps had to be lowered 15 degrees the cabin remain unpressurized with the plane's rear exit door open and the staircase extended uh, and then they agreed. So there was a bit of a fight about it, but eventually it happened and um, they took off. So at 7.40pm, they were on their way and they only had five people left on board. So it was Cooper, the hijacker, the pilot, the flight attendant, Mucklow, so the one flight attendant, a co-pilot and a flight engineer. So just five people in total. Um, and then, yeah, not that Cooper knew about it at the time, but there were Air Force planes scrambled to shadow the plane. There was one above and one below, and there was another one scrambled, but eventually ran out of fuel. Um, not that it mattered. Um, so after takeoff, Cooper told McLeod to join the rest of the queue in the cockpit and remain there with the door closed. So he was left alone in the kind of main bit of the plane. She complied and um, she saw him tying something around his waist but couldn't really understand, couldn't really see, couldn't really make out what he was doing. And then approximately approximately 8pm, so 20 minutes or so after they'd taken off, a warning light flashed in the cockpit indicating that the aft air stair apparatus, apparatus had been activated and then the crew soon noticed a change of air pressure indicating that the aft door was open. 15 minutes later, the aircraft's tail section sustained a sudden upward movement, significant enough to require trimming to bring the plane back to level flight. So, like, the back of the plane, like, jumped up. So mm. it was, like, a bit of a sudden thing, and they had to kind of work it. And obviously, don't forget that the back of it's basically open, mm. so it's not particularly level. Um, and then at around 10.15, the plane was landed at Reno Airport. 
So, as you can imagine, FBI agents, state troopers, deputies and Reno police surrounded the jet. Uh, it has not yet been determined uh, with certainty that he that Cooper was no longer on, on board. Um, but an armed search quickly confirmed his absence as well as the ransom money. So what she saw him tie around his waist was, was the, money. the bag no. of money. Um, all that was left of him was his tie, his tie pin and two of the four parachutes. So yeah, what happens next is a decades-long manhunt of immense proportions. They did door-to-door searches. They did a replication of the flight, which, as part of that, FBI officers pushed a 90-kilogram sled out of an aircraft to simulate his jump, mm-hmm. um, which is random. But yeah, didn't, didn't... One would hope they had an eye on where that was landing, right? Oh yeah, they would have done. But because... We'll, we'll pop it out. We'll pop it out, <laughs> see where it lands, see if it kills anyone, lands into a house. Um, and they did a widespread aerial search. Though the estimated location of Cooper's Jump was thought to be near Lake Merwin in Washington, no trace of him was ever found. Uh, so nine years later, in 1980, just north of Portland on the Columbia River, a young boy named Brian... Brian Ingram was digging a fire pit in the sand, lol, at a place <laughs> called Tenabar. He uncovered three bundles of cash a couple of inches below the surface <gasps> with rubber bands still intact. There was a total of £5,800. Oh my God, um, what a find. And the Cooper serial numbers matched. Oh so my it was, God, it was his It money. was part of the money. Yeah, not all of it, but part of it. And it was the first evidence since oh my since God. the um, plane and how jumping long after was it sorry uh, it was nine years later so yeah yeah, yeah seventy one and then it was found in nineteen eighty um, despite the extensive manhunt and FBI investigation the perpetrator has never been located or identified they have no idea who he is the case remains the only unsolved air piracy in commercial aviation history the really funny thing about it or not very funny thing about it was it inspired so many copycats afterwards as well really? and everybody got caught like no <laughs> one could do yeah. no one's got his they knew suaveness it was, yeah exactly and uh, kind of the first of its time but and still to this day no one knows whether he died in the jump or had a further plan and managed to survive well, it well you would think if he'd buried the money he probably did survive the jump but then something happened yeah <gasps> you would think so um, the FBI were really conflicted about it and they're on record saying there's no way an experienced parachute would have jumped in pitch black night in the rain with a 200 mile an hour wind in his face wearing loafers and a trench coat it was simply too risky but he did it and there's potentially chance that he did survive um but yeah it's bonkers and actually that's already quite long but the theories and the kind of suggestions of what really happened are mad it's there's so much information about that a lot of it's on reddit which i frequent quite a lot as we know um but yeah there's shit tons of theories about it and it's still really really popular even up until like last year there was like oh this 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 is the guy few people have had deathbed confessions and it's turned out not to be true and stuff like that uh, yeah, but it's really worth like looking into. It's really, really interesting if you've got a couple of hours to waste. That could like they could make a Hollywood film out of that. Right? Yeah, yeah, I don't know why they haven't actually yeah. because it is really do it. Let's write it. Yeah, mate. There we go. It's kind of a little bit like um, Catch Me If You Can, sort of. Who uh, the Leonardo DiCaprio film, I mm. suppose. Um, but yeah, so def- I would definitely recommend doing some research and looking into the different theories about it. But two of my favourite conflicting points about what could have happened is aside from the money that was found on the beach in 1980, none of the other bills have been found in circulation. So oh. that money's never been spent. The ransom money that he had, so that would in theory suggest he's dead. Yeah. But uh, then, like, 
laundering is actually quite easy, I think. But they've never been found anywhere because obviously it, as it gets put into banks, anything like that, it's not always going to pass hand to hand. It's going to be used as cash currency at, at some, some point. point. Yeah, it's gonna, yeah but then at what point are they like... Who? Maybe I don't really understand how cash works, but like they're not going to any, you know, some like shop isn't going to be checking the serial number of every dollar that they get. No. And then that's going back out. There there will be dollars that never go anywhere near a formal institution. But the likelihood of not Mm. one single $20 note ending up in a bank where it's... But uh, but even a bank's bank's scanning everyone. Probably not. I don't know. I guess. I mean, everyone went mad over here for those £5 notes that were meant to be worth £100, (laughs) didn't they? So just get people looking for it basically and also because it was such a big deal people and they so there was lots of stories but there was one guy who was re, who was um investigating it all and he released all of the serial numbers to say if you see this in circulation like let us know because it's the, one of the biggest manhunts in history and um, but the other my other conflicting thing that i found really interesting is the fbi searched but couldn't find anyone that disappeared that weekend because obviously he was a, he was a real person. He mm. was quite suave. Mm-hmm. He knew what he was asking for. He would have had a history. He would have had a life. He wasn't a a runaway, um, a vagrant, yeah, or, or anything yeah. like that. Um, but they reckon that if that if that's the case, that there was no one that was reported missing. He wasn't a missing person. That he may have returned to his normal occupation. So he actually chose to do this, or in, if he chose to do it this way, it was a bank holiday weekend. So he could have done it on the Friday and got back home. Got back home <laughs> just to get gone, the money. And gone back to work. Of course, Guys, just to get the money. It's a bank holiday. Oh, there we go. Sort it out. Let's get on. Let's oh, get on a. Let's go to play. Hijack a plane. Cancel your plans. Cancel your diaries. <laughs> I'll meet you in Heathrow. Yep. <laughs> who's gonna Who's gonna jump out the plane? It's not gonna be I'm me. I'm doing that shit. Um, yeah, so the, one of the authors of the many books about him is quoted as saying, if you're planning on going back to work on Monday, then you would need as much time as possible to get out of the woods, find transportation and get home. The very best time for this is in front of a four-day weekend, which is the da- the timing that Dan Cooper chose for his crime. Furthermore, if he was planning ahead, he knew he had to hitchhike out of the woods. It's much easier to get picked up in a suit and tie than in an old blue jeans. Um, and he never like he never got to Mexico it wasn't like he was trying to escape over the border no he was just having a bit of a laugh well yeah because also they reckon he some people say that they think he suggested four parachutes to begin with because he wanted it to seem like he was going to take some hostages with him so he asked for more but then he actually only took two because obviously one was going to be a, um, a backup um but yeah so the FBI officially suspended active investigation of the case in July 2016 but they do still look into evidence that that's they deem so interesting enough mm. yeah that's crazy there's got to be more straightforward ways to rub rob a lot of money than like having to do all that well I suppose because it was it was groundbreaking <laughs> at the time like no one had ever <laughs> done pioneering. it he managed to get away with it mm. so if he survived it there was quite a lot of heists like that that were because and like we've said in other episodes like things were put in place after he did this to make sure it didn't happen again mm. so they would have probably let any old dickhead on a plane before a crocodile and a duffel bag <laughs> <It's okay>. so <laughs> you never know what goes on but it's so fascinating and then yeah on reddit on the unsolved mysteries um subreddit it's massive people are still talking about it now and there's so many theories and like people keep writing books about it so they're like oh I think I found who it is and then it never is that person but like just to sell their books there's there's quite a few TV programs about it it's a really really 
really interesting case. I love yeah, it. Yeah, that is nuts. That's really good. You um, should really read into it because also the pictures, which we'll put on Instagram, obviously, he just looks cool as fuck. He looks, even the ones where they've like aged him, he just looks really, really funny. Uh, yeah. <laughs> cool. The well early, done. Uh, early Don Draper. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> two two plane stories. Yeah, that's weird, isn't it? Having weird little and a weird and disappearances. A, a disappearance could be a near miss. Could be two a... planes. One. Mm. So what we do now each week, <clears throat> because we are talking about, we want to move away from death and, and sad stories, and sad stories, um, and onto stuff that uh, we're enjoying and we like. So we go onto a little section called Girl Crush. So basically, we're each of us just going to talk about women who are inspiring us this week or who we just think are great. Just a little note of appreciation to end on a positive note mm. if you don't like it you can skip it it's yeah fine. skip away it's fine we don't, we don't care we care a little bit don't skip too much you yeah. might learn something to be fair you so. might do find someone to go and see yeah um, so we go the same order yeah. of the stories so I'm do first rock paper scissors <laughs> Christ no <laughs> um, so my girl crush this week is Hanya Yanagihara who is an author who wrote A Little Life which is a book that Els and I have both well I'm still reading I haven't quite finished it um, finished she is a Hawaiian author um, and she has written a book that was in 2015 so like it's a couple of years out of out of publication but it's a beast though isn't it it's a, yeah, it's it's a beast but it is beautiful and devastating mm. and wonderful and she writes about love in a way that literally moves me to tears every time I read the way she talks about how people love each other yeah it's just really really beautiful also trigger warning it's very yeah like child abuse so like unless you're up for that don't read yeah, it yeah it's really dark but I've... it's absolutely gorgeous the novel is a little life um so yeah Hanya Crack On is like a sec- second novel she worked for she wrote for Condé Nast Traveller oh, before then Did so she? Like, yeah, yeah. Wow. so she's like as I understand it this is only her second foray into novels and it's fucking brills yeah it's I so can't good. read it my friend gave me a synopsis when she read it and I was like I just think it would ruin me yeah it's a lot it's a lot it is really dark but it there's glimmers of hopeful well this ness in it this is it like the way that yeah I mean as I said the way that people love each other it's like yeah that really really shines through and is really beautifully articulated mm. um, if you can just ignore all the horror <laughs> the wall to wall horror <laughs> yeah yeah it is it is a difficult read but I think it's worth it and it's a long read but it's not like a oh god this is long it's like a it's not whoa. relentless I've read more relentless books than mm, that. yeah that's true actually yeah. So yeah, Hanya Yanagihara. Good nice. one. Nice one. Nice, nice one. one. Else? Um, I went to see some comedy last week Ooh. at the Soho Theatre. Um, so uh, mine is Tessa Coates because that's who I went to see. Um, she's just super funny and really clever, and um, she does the debrief podcast, which has just oh, stopped. Yeah, that's so shit. Yeah. Um, it's shit that it stopped. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the podcast well is shit. good. <laughs> I mean, no, yeah, it's really, really sad that they've stopped yeah. doing it. Why did they stop? They've stopped funding it. Yeah. They're putting oh. all their money into Grazia Online. 
Ooh. which is fine but it's a different audience mm, like yeah. that's why that's why the debrief worked because mm. it was a bit younger it was a bit fresher yeah. and didn't have like two grand coats in it all the time yeah <laughs> always with the fucking two grand coats in Croatia honestly who's got I don't even money? buy coats yeah so she does the debrief podcast with um Stevie Martin who's also they're, they're in like a sketch group together um and I just think that's really funny to listen to. It's like a kind of kind of an advice podcast. I've not listened to all of them because I guess with things like that, some are going to be more relevant than others. But I listened to one like literally week, like a week ago that was about like how to run and it was just quite useful that's interesting. tips. And they're just, um, they're both really funny and the way they sort of talk about things is just quite approachable and they're kind of, they're, I think they're a similar age to us, so quite relatable to where we are in life so when I saw that she was doing like a solo show I quite wanted to go and see it and it's it's very funny it's called Primates it's um kind of ties to her degree which is in anthropology um but then also to kind of real life situations with like a poignancy at the end but she's super smart and really funny and I was like yeah you can be mine this week (laughs) so uh yeah it's good nice that sounded a bit (laughs) weird you're gonna be mine that one this week (laughs) you're mine we'll cut that (laughs) Um, mine because my biggest hobby is Reddit is uh, Michelle McNamara <gasps> because not that it's relevant when this eventually comes out but last it will be we're only like two weeks behind now okay yeah mm. fine um, <clears throat> last week they caught the Golden State Killer mm-hmm. original oh my god original Night Stalker slash East Area Rapist East Area Rapist Eron's GSK <laughs> That lovely, lovely acronym, um, which I literally screamed about in the office, which was hilarious, <laughs> and told everyone that I saw that day about it happening. But yeah, I just I wanted to pick Michelle because I think that obviously there's other reasons why he was found, but I think that her relentless pursuit mm. of finding the truth, finding justice for the victims, like really trying to pick him out, I think that really, really helped. Obviously, there was help on the book and pattern did a lot towards the end as well but I just think she was an incredible driver of truth and yeah I thought she was I haven't got the book yet that's really bad isn't it but I've read quite a few excerpts from it and there was an amazing article in like the Sunday Times magazine which weirdly didn't tell anyone that she died until right at the end they were Mm. like oh Misha McNamara talks us through her new book and it's like lad she's dead dead, like what are you up to it was really I thought it was really weird um but I just think it's amazing and like I actually did a little cry when I kept reading the tweets because it was like because she put so so much time and enthusiasm and effort into it yeah and like it's it's bittersweet but also it's lovely that he's been found in the part of her like a lot of her work and also she coined the term golden state killer because mm-hmm. she attributed a few other crimes because it's also the van something ransacker yeah. as well mm-hmm. which is really really interesting and i just we should say the name of the book which is i'll oh, be gone in the dark i'll be gone in the dark yeah i'll be gone in the dark just it's what he <laughs> suddenly yeah, I was like, it, have we yeah. said it because at her um her last thing which is like oh you're gonna be you're gonna be really like settled one day you're never gonna expect it but we're gonna turn up and we'll be waiting for you and I just found it really bittersweet and yeah I just think it's lovely that posthumously something and she only died like last year two years ago ago. 2016 um yeah so she's mine and also I'm on reddit 
relatively a lot anyway but the day that he was caught I think I spent all of my work day on Reddit (laughs) reading all of the articles about it and someone amazing has done a timeline of everything that oh I saw that Joseph D'Angelo did it's fascinating it's It's mad like I I know that if people if you don't follow true crime if you don't really get it but like he honestly he was not the worst because there's so many serial killers that are terrible but he was such a big part of people's fear and people mm. lo- locking their doors and all of the things that he did I mean that's quite good but like lock your door well yeah but no but, yeah. yeah I mean imagine I just couldn't you know tomorrow you could find out about something that's happening literally in your neighbourhood in the part of the city that you live in it would be terrifying you couldn't sleep easy at night even no. you know it would be of course that was if you knew that was going on in the area that you live in it's going to be your every every yeah it's going to be all consuming but it would be for me i'd be terrified of it yeah and i I mean that that the whole hit the whole east area rapist and the um gsk part of it like the whole thing that stuck out of me anyway was the town hall meeting thing oh god did you see the picture so terrifying that is mad but also how satisfying that we fucking know who it was because when it came out that he was a police officer everyone was like no wonder no one really noticed because he was at the back as a police officer but he wasn't even he was just just in in the crowd yeah but the whole like the guy that was like i would never let this happen to my wife i would never let this happen Mm. to my wife and then it happened to him two months Mm. later or whatever it's mad so yeah for for listeners who don't follow true crime or don't really um or haven't really followed the golden state killer story it is absolutely mind-blowing what has just happened it's effectively like um one of the biggest serial killers of the 70s got caught like last week Mm, yeah (laughs) um it's fascinating and and is in prison now um so we would recommend reading up on it yeah so i i'm i'm ordering the book i'm gonna get it I'm going to read and it. Michelle McNamara is um, she pursued it doggedly yep. until she, she was died. like a true crime obsession writer and turned it into a book especially for him because she was obsessed with the case and she a lot of her thoughts and breaks and a lot of her kind of investigation helped didn't really thank her or anything like that but there's a, even, her, even her just writing the book has renewed interest mm, in the case and yeah, I think yeah, that's yeah. a really big thing and I think it's really amazing and they're going to write a new chapter for the book to talk about what's happened once everything kind of gets sorted has he he hasn't uh, I mean everything points to it but he hasn't officially been found guilty has he not yet and apparently he's not talking he's admitted to being the ransacker right which was um, what five five or six years before the East Area Rapist officially started but he's not talking so right um, okay that signifies innocence yeah well (laughs) no just interesting interesting and it's amazing that someone that got away with it for so long can be found out and yeah interesting that's a great girl crush yeah I saw a picture on uh, I saw the picture from the town hall meeting on Twitter and um, there's a woman in the are you going to say about Mara Nan yeah. Sheila? <laughs> the what? Someone was like, "Oh, here's um, here he is." Like, in I the think that was crowd. my favorite murder. I think it was. Oh, was um, it my favorite murder? Georgia said it. Yeah. And then, like, and is that Mara Nan Sheila in the front? Because there's it's... a woman who looks exactly like you've. Have you seen um... Wild Wild Country? Mm. Oh yeah yeah yeah. I've I've seen like first. Oh Sheila, the secretary person. Yeah. yeah. Oh, looks right. looks very much like she did in the seventies. Yeah. The same haircut. I mean, I assume <laughs> Can you imagine? a lot of women. <laughs> that would be amazing. The same person in the. Well, I suppose it's not that far off. It's like Oregon and Oregon and yeah. California. Um, offline, we need to talk about Wild Wild Country because it's yeah. 
Yeah, I've only seen one. crazy. Seen yeah, it's, it's so good. She, she's not going to be my girl crush at any point. No. She's interesting, though. She's, she's got a lovely voice. <laughs> she she has, but she sounds so different in the um, like video footage of her from the time to the interview with her in the documentary. Yeah, I guess it's quite manipulative, isn't it? Because she does come across as this quite like softly spoken da-da-da, and you don't really know who she is, but she clearly... I think she sounds a bit like my mum. Is your mum? No, Indian. my mum's not Indian. She's Finnish, <laughs> but like I do, there's a lilt that I notice in my mum's voice. It's really, my mum's not Maranath Shuda, so it's fine. <laughs> my mum's not been part of a cult that I know of. <laughs> as far as you're aware. If you had to join a cult, what cult would you join? I'd start my own. We've had this of conversation. Of course, of course, you would. Because the first three episodes of Wild Wild Country, I was like, "This sounds great. Yeah, when can I start?" Is, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to start dressing like that. I'm probably going to have a themed party, dressed in red and one of three colours. Easy, easy peasy. Yeah, like you'd never have to worry about getting dressed again. It would make life pretty good. I, I also want to like walk around like this. I think it's delightful. <laughs> your namaste's your your uh, hands together. Yeah. I want ninety Rolls Royces. It's fine. So uh, yeah, I'd start my own. I didn't really think you're born for this. I honestly think you're born to be a cult leader but I wouldn't try every, I, I won't give any spoilers you don't know what happens no well I imagine bad things bad things yeah <laughs> it's not nothing it's not good really good a documentary is not going to be made about a cult would, where everyone just like really progresses themselves yeah. <laughs> like, has a lot of sex has a fulfilling time I'd be episodes one to three not four to six okay basically mm. right. <laughs> noted. noted I agree with that yeah what cult would you be part of Jonestown <laughs> yeah, just kill myself. <laughs> Dark. Drink the Lovely. <laughs> That's really what I could I, don't, I can't yeah. leave anymore. I feel like I don't have a big enough back catalogue <laughs> of cults in my head to be able to establish one. I'll just be part of yours. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. you... We'd, we're like, me could, and Elsa would join us, yeah. founding mm. members. I've got that jumper on pre Can we have some kind of, like, status? Like, what's our title going to be? If you're the dear leader, what are what are we? We're your henchwomen. Maranan. <laughs> Maranan. Else, Maranon Dells. You're like Mother Eve from The Power. Oh, Christ, yeah. And we are Roxy and. I can't remember. I don't know. Um, the Power. Yeah, no, I haven't read it. It's such a good book. It sounds a bit like you're talking about um, Starlight Express. <laughs> oh, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that. I just laugh. I just laugh. <laughs> at things like good one. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Rocky Horror, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen that either. Um, oh, my God. Um, I'd, even though I'd start the cult. I don't want to be hierarchical about it. I, it's going to be hard. Humans are humans, though. They're going to have to be, It's human nature. Yeah, and I'm a bit of a knob, so I would try and take charge on things. But I think you need to. I've gone very husky. Husky. Just She's into it. You can be nice about it. I'm very I submissive. Think. I'll do whatever you say, later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, yeah. Anyway, my cult's starting next <clears throat> okay. week, so sweet, 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 sweet. we'll make a podcast about it. I don't know what I'd call it, actually. Um, Write in with your suggestions of what Squares' cult should be called. Yeah. yeah. What the uniform should be. That's what I'm interested in. Blues and greens. Blues, Blues and, greens. and greens. Blue and greens should nice never and be chill. seen, mate. What? Have <laughs> heard that? Mate, I'm starting my cult. I'm not going to listen to that nonsense. I can't copy... It's like a universal law. Yeah, well, brown and black is a universal law, isn't it? Yeah, yeah true. Ooh. Never. No one wants a brown and black. What colours do you want me to do then? Muted silver. 
Beige, not doing beige. Oh, why not blue and green? Blue and green, it's fine. Because they should never be yeah, seen. No, 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 like, no, but it's because it rhymes doesn't make it true. You've got the choice of blue or green. You don't have to wear them together. So you oh, could right. wear three shades of blue. But what okay. if they're both like a jewel green and a jewel blue? They all look fucking bad. Also, together. fashion rules can go fuck themselves because I'll wear whatever I want mm. and I'll look great. Can we have a lot of um, long line baggy you're buying it all from charity shops so you can Fine. do whatever okay, you want you it's just the colour okay. I I don't care what you wear I, I quite like these dungarees mm, mm. they come in a range of colours so I might just invest in these are like fair trade Lucy and Yak so fine anyway so that's us that's yeah. a wrap that's a wrap for episode 7 episode 7 mad isn't it almost at big tens if you listen, if you're one of the X number of people that we know are downloading the podcast in the USA, can you follow us on Instagram or Twitter at WhatAwayPod and just like give us a wave? Yeah. Literally yeah. like a, a hand wave emoji. We just want to know whether you're bots or whether you're real people. But shouts to Imogen. Yes. Yes, yes Imogen. Imogen. Imogen should have been all of our girl crushes. Hi, Imogen. This yeah. is creepy as fuck. <laughs> but um, most of our listeners at the moment are friends and family. Mm. You're a real person, a person <laughs> that's found us, found us yeah. presumably through Instagram and then on Twitter. But hi. Thanks hope, for tweeting us. Thanks for tweeting us. I hope you don't get creeped out by this. It made our day. Out. It really did. We WhatsApp each other about it. Yeah, I screenshotted it and sent it to the other two. <laughs> it was amazing. Asking if anyone knew you. And we don't. But now we do. <laughs> now I feel we do. like we do now. And now we're best friends. And Yeah. Feel free to suggest the story you want us to cover. Mm-hmm. We can do that. No problem at all. Yeah. To reiterate, if, you, if, you, are, if you went through a near miss, come and talk to us. Yeah. And um, you can send us an email at whataway.pod at gmail.com. Has anyone checked that for a little while? Yeah, I'm on it at work. It's just in the background okay. of work. So nothing. No, nothing. <laughs> Don't you mean hundreds and hundreds oh, God. of uh, So many I can't it's get. It's almost time a full time job going through the fan mail. It's just lots from Podbean. <laughs> Seriously email us. <laughs> please, 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 please. Um and we'll see you in episode eight. Yeah. See you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.